Um, welcome to church, guys. Great to see you. Um, yeah, uh, my name is Ryan, one of the pastors here. And, uh, you know, we say church starts at 10 o'clock. Sometimes the praise portion starts a little later than that. Uh, we apologize. Sometimes uh, things are just out of your control. Thanks for bearing with us, and it's great to have you here. Uh, don't worry, I've cut all the jokes out of my sermon, okay? So there's no jokes in here now, so we'll, no. You're, you're going to go home and be like, why wasn't that guy so funny? It's like, oh, he had to cut out all of his jokes, you know. No. Uh, welcome, welcome. Um, I want to point your attention to a sheet of paper that you probably sat next to. Last uh, week, if you were here, um, we announced, uh, you saw us announce that uh, we are, uh, every fall we, we have kind of a, a shakeup of the senior leadership team to some degree where, where people are transitioning off the team as, as their kind of tenures end, and then uh, we're inviting people to transition onto the team. And so on the back of that piece of paper there, there are four deacon candidates that we have coming up this year, um, which uh, we're excited about, and we've had conversations with these folks and with, with people they know, and, and what we've done, what we do each and every year is we kind of present them to the congregation uh, for, um, for feedback. If you are really encouraged by these selections, let us know. If you say, you know, I have some more questions about, about these selections, let us know, and we can get together and have a conversation with you. We, we are a firm believer in not putting senior leaders over you that are going to take the church in different directions or who are in charge of, like, ensuring that justice is done within our community um, without your input on it, you know? And so this is just a process, and so it's going to be a process that's open for a few more weeks. Um, and so these are the four, uh, Amanda, Joshua, Tylene, and Andrew. Um, so the, uh, go, their bios are on the back there for you. Go ahead and give them a read through, and, and feel free to email uh, Dave or myself or anybody on the senior leadership team, for that matter, uh, with any thoughts that you have on it. So great, great. Um, well, if you brought your Bible uh, today, we're going to use that. We use it each and every Sunday. Go ahead and pull it out, open up to Psalm 35. Psalm 35 is where, is where we're going to be working from. If you don't have a Bible, we have some place underneath the chairs in front of you. Uh, you should be able to grab one of those. It should be close to you, unless you're in the front row. But, oh, good, good. People in the front row brought their own Bible anyways. Good job, Lena and Mookie. Um, uh, go ahead and pull it out. Open up to the book of Psalms, which it takes up the most pages in the Bible, I like to say, and it's in the middle about. So if you just open to the middle of the Bible and start flipping around, you're sure to bump into the book of Psalms. And when you get there, find the big number 35. That is the 35th Psalm, the 35th Psalm. And um, let me give you a little backstory how we've come to this Psalm today. Over this summer, we've been selecting Psalms at random by way of this bingo machine over here. The great bingo machine has been determining our psalm each and every Sunday, which has been really fun. Um, and what, I think this is the sixth psalm that we're going to be in now. And if you were to pick a theme that was to unite all of the psalms we've preached through so far, um, you, um, you might choose that we've been encountering psalms that we don't typically pray as humans. You, we, we've been in psalms that we definitely don't really sing out loud, okay? So we're encountering a lot of psalms, because we're doing it at random, that uh, we, if we were to admit it, we'd say, you know, these prayers aren't coming off of our lips. These songs aren't being sung by our mouths, even though they're in the ancient Israel uh, prayer book and hymnal, which is really interesting. And we come to another one today in Psalm 35 that has a few, of the, a few more of those subjects for you, perhaps that you'd say, I don't really pray this, I don't really sing this either. Um, and because this is a prayer that David composed in response to his life circumstances that he went, to, uh, or went through. We're not sure when he went through them, but it's clear that he has certain events 
certain people, certain circumstances in mind as he prayed this. And, and here's the thing. After he prayed it, he wrote it down. He wrote down his prayer. Then he thoughtfully composed it and worked it into beautiful poetic form. And then he handed it off to his worship directors and leaders and said, all right, now make all the people sing this. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. Now, either David is a megalomaniac, okay, that says everybody needs to know about and sing about this thing that I've gone through, or he thinks that there's something in this, this psalm and psalms like it that are important for everybody, that there's something in here for everybody to process, even though they didn't go through the direct experience that he went through. He said there's, there's things in here that are common to being human that all of us can learn from, all of us can grow from. I think that's what he's up to here. And Jesus Christ, when he came on the scene, what he said was, the Psalms are about me. It's a pretty bold claim. The Psalms are about me. These things that, you've written, you, that are written down by King David and, and others, these are, in fact, about me. I'm the subject of the Psalms. So that means that David is actually revealing Christ to us through these prayers. So there is something for us here to walk away with, even if our circumstances are very, very different from David. So all this is to say that while admittedly, and we're going to get to reading it here in a second, which is why I'm giving you this precursor, many of us have never had these experiences, okay, exactly like these ones. The treasure of the gospel of Christ is buried deep in here, and it's really beautiful. And I hope we get to uh, encounter it today and, and you get to see the gospel afresh in new ways, um, in exciting ways, ways that give you language to express what you've experienced, what you haven't been able to put words to up until today. That, that's my hope for today. Because the gospel is supposed to give life to all who grasp it. And so Psalm 35 is, hopefully gives you new handles on the gospel to be able to grasp it, hold it, talk about it, engage it. That's Psalm 35 today. Now, before we read it together, we're going to read it all at once, but I want you to be able to have the big segments in mind of this psalm, because it is a longer psalm, so if you have your pen or pencil, pull that out. I'm going to encourage you to, to draw in your Bible here to put lines at these segments, because this psalm has three sections, um, three main sections. Each of them makes a series of requests that are similar in each section, and each of them has a conclusion that's similar for each of the sections. Um, the first section ends at verse 10. So 1 through 10, so you can put a line in your Bible uh, at the bottom of verse 10 before verse 11. Uh, and verses uh, 9 and 10 are really that, it's kind of a hopeful conclusion that's going to be at the end of each one of these. So you can put a box around verse 9 if you'd like. Um, and then the, the next section goes from verse 11 through verse 18, okay? So you can put a line after verse 18 there, and you can put a box around 18 even if you'd like. That's kind of the hopeful section that's concluding that part. Um, and then the next section uh, starts at 19 there, and it goes through the end of the psalm through 28. And this hopeful conclusion is verses 27 and 28. You can put a box around that too. So I just wanted you to have the structure in mind, because when you read a longer psalm like this, it can all kind of blur together, and you'd be like, what's going on here? And before long, it's just like drinking from a fire hose. So we're going to read this together. Um, and it's a, I'm going to offer a couple little revisions here and there that other translations pick up on that the CSB doesn't pick up on, and you can write those in as well, okay? So here we go. Psalm 35 of David. Oppose my opponents, Lord. Fight those who fight me. 
Take your shields, large and small, and come to my aid. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers, and assure my soul. That's the Hebrew word for my soul is actually right there. Uh, assure my soul. That's uh, nefesh. I am your deliverance. Let those who intend to take my life be disgraced and humiliated. Let those who plan to harm me be turned back and ashamed. Let them be like chaff in the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. They hid their net for me without cause. They dug a pit for me without cause. Let ruin come on him expectantly and let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his ruin. Then my soul, there's that Hebrew word again, then my soul will rejoice in the Lord. I will delight in his deliverance. All my bones will say, Lord, who is like you? Rescuing the poor one from one too strong for him, the poor or, or the needy from one who robs him. All right, here's the second section. Malicious witnesses come forward. They question me about things I do not know. They repay me evil for good, making me desolate. Yet when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled myself with fasting, and, and my prayer was genuine. I went about mourning as if, if for my friend or brother. I was bowed down with grief, like one mourning for a mother. But when I stumbled, they gathered in glee. They gathered against me. Assailants I do not know tore at me and did not stop. With godless mockery, they gnashed their teeth at me. Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue me from their ravages. Rescue my precious life from the young lions. And then you can put the word then in, in front of this verse. Then I will praise you in the great assembly. Then I will exalt you among many people. Several translations drop that then in there. It corresponds back to verse nine. It's a then at the front of that one too. All right, third section. Do not let my deceitful enemies rejoice over me. Do not let those who hate me without cause wink at me maliciously. For they do not speak in friendly ways, but contrive fraudulent schemes against those who live peacefully in the land. It's not just me they're coming after, after. They come after all who live peacefully in the land. They open their mouths wide against me and say, Aha, aha, we saw it. You saw it, Lord. Do not be silent. Lord, do not be far from me. Wake up and rise to my defense, to my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, Lord my God in keeping with your righteousness. And do not let them rejoice over me. Do not let them say in their hearts, aha, just what we wanted. Do not let them say, we have swallowed him up. Let those who rejoice at my misfortune be disgraced and humiliated. Let those who exalt themselves over me be clothed with shame and reproach. And we have another then you can put here if it's not in your Bible. Then those who want my vindication will shout for joy and be glad. They will continually say, the Lord be exalted. He takes pleasure in his servant's well-being. And my tongue will proclaim your righteousness and your praise all the day long. So this is David's prayer. This is David's prayer. It's a long prayer, but it's the same prayer three times. It's a similar prayer three times. That's his poetic composition that was set to music and sung in ancient Israel. This is what, what Jesus Christ said re reveals who he is and what he's up to. And so as God's word, this is what God contends is helpful for us to grasp in order to know him and in order to follow him. 
And so that's actually just what we're going to do today. We're going to follow that order. We're going to just see what's, what's going on with David, what's going on with Christ, and what's going on with us. Just keep it simple. What's going on with David, what's going on with Christ, and what's going on with us? So what's going on with David here? He makes it pretty clear. Um, it seems that, that people wanted to take his life. People were working against him, trying to harm him. He's being set up, trying to be caught in his words in different ways. We have almost a courtroom setting of false witnesses coming forward. Perhaps you caught that this is coming from people that, that he lamented from, that he had a generous disposition towards himself, but, but when it gets turned around the other way and he comes into misfortune, they're not there for him. They just rejoice over the fact that he's suffering. He's feeling betrayed. He's receiving insult and mocking people who know him, people who he doesn't know. He has opponents that are lying and trying to catch him in something, all because they're trying to exalt themselves. This is verse 26. Let those who exalt themselves over me, trying to exalt themselves over King David. There's a lot of different people doing a lot of different things to King David in this psalm. And so it's likely that this psalm is not in reference to one circumstance, but, but several Perhaps each sec section is a different circumstance where he saw his enemies plotting against him. There's one theme that unifies all these images. One theme, did you catch it? It's entrapment. It's entrapment. It's in each one of these sections. That these are people trying to entrap David. In verse four, it's people planning to harm him. They're planning it. In verse 7, it's people hiding a net for me, he says, without cause. They dug a pit for me without cause. They're, 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 they're trying to entrap him. It's, bringing, it's these false witnesses coming forward trying to trap David, questioning him about things he doesn't know, trying to get him caught in his words. It's like people encircling him like a pack of lions, he says in verse 17. Rescue me from their ravages. Rescue my, my precious life from the young lions. They're hunting me. It's people contriving fraudulent schemes against him in verse 20 there. It's people speaking lies about him. And it's people hoping to swallow him up. People are trying to entrap David. See, this isn't some disagreement that's come to a, a head and, and people want to take it out back with David and, and duke it out. No, their opposition is it's cold, it's calculated, it's crafty, it's clever, it's thought out, it's measured out, it's strategic. It's likely you've not experienced this level of strategic thought out opposition to try to trap you in something in life. Maybe you have, but this is, these are the troubles of someone who has power. These are the troubles of someone who has influence. This is the troubles of someone who has wealth. Perhaps you've experienced them in microcosm, like at work, someone's trying to advance their career over yours. But this probably doesn't feel super relevant to your life. Like, like ah, if I'm honest, like, no one's really trying to take my life from me. <laughs> no one's really intending to harm. No one's really working behind the scenes to try to get me to fall and, and humiliate me or, or anything like this or try to catch me in a lie. Um, but hold on. S stick with me. This thing is so incredibly relevant to our lives, especially as we consider it through Christ and especially as we consider a little more what David's requests are. Because if you're anything like me, David's requests seem a little intense. Um, he's obviously saying, God, please rescue me, bring me out of this, save me, deliver me. 
But you saw it in the first three verses. He starts in a metaphor that's pretty uncomfortable. He likens God to a warrior, puts weapons in God's hand. Says, God, go get them. Whoa. This is intense. It seems to get more and more intense as we read through it. This is something I really want to call your attention to and something that's really key to understanding this psalm. David is not asking for God to physically harm them in any way, shape, or form. That's not his request. When he asked, what are his requests? Look at it in verse 4. Let those who intend to take my life be disgraced and humiliated. Let those who plan to harm me be turned back and ashamed. Skip down to verse 8. Let ruin come on him unexpectedly. How? By letting the net that he spread out for me ensnare him. See, David's not calling out fire and brimstone at all here on anybody. He's asking what they're doing be exposed and that they be embarrassed for the evil that they've been contriving. At worst, he's asking for their own devices to come back on them. See, David here is asking God to expose his opponents so that they feel shame and conviction for what they've done. And at worst, God to implement his, you could call it ironic justice. Whatever they're planning, God, let that happen to them. Let it be turned on their own heads. So that's how David's asking God to deal with his opponents. It seems really intense with this imagery that he uses, but when we read what he's actually asking God to do, there's something far different that's going on than than war, metaphor, and analogy. More importantly is what David is asking God to do with him. David's request of God to to how he wants God to act towards him. he's, He's gone through a lot. He's dealing with entrapment, he's dealing with betrayal, he's dealing with, dealing with false witnesses, persecution, all of it, rumors. He's dealing with the insults, and he looks to God in verse 17, and what does he say? He says, Lord, how long will you look on? How long will you look on here, Lord? It's a very interesting construction here in the Hebrew, actually. Typically, when you read this how long in the Hebrew, it's with the general sense of like, uh, God, are you going to turn and see? Or like, like, eventually, how long are you going to not look at us? And then when you look at us, obviously, you're going to act. This how long is, God, how long are you going to watch these people do this? You're just watching it, God, and not doing anything. It's much darker. It's, it's a much darker how long. You're watching this, God. You're, you're tuned in. How long are you going to continue to watch this? Skip down to verses 21 and 22. They open their mouths wide. This is a Hebrew idiom for saying someone says big lies. Big lies against me and say, aha, aha, we saw it. Then there's the turn of phrase. Lord, you saw it. And whenever there's a turn of phrase in Hebrew, it's time to pay attention, perk up. I guess in in any language, okay? Whenever there's a turn of phrase, perk up. Something's about to happen. And and to be sure, this is the the biggest, uh, it's the apex of the psalm. It's the mountaintop. It's the peak. This is the most emphatic part of the psalm. And it's actually a confrontation with God. It's David's confrontation with God. And in this confrontation, he uses the three Hebrew names for God, Yahweh, Adonai, Elohim, and he uses them twice. It's super, super emphatic. I've read this, this, uh, this psalm in a lot of different Bible translations this week, and there's not a translation that puts enough exclamation points in it. 
super emphatic. It goes like this. You saw it, Yahweh. Do not be silent. Elohim, do not be far from me. Wake up and rise to my defense, to my cause, Elohim Adonai. Vindicate me, Yahweh Adonai, in keeping with your righteousness. Just the names of God. Boom, 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 boom. All all grouped together. Vindicate me, O God. Because David doesn't just want rescue, although he asks for that in, in several, several ways. He wants vindication. In fact, all of these things, all these requests that he makes in the psalm, really sit under this single request of vindication. Like vindication is at the top of the mobile, and all his other requests dangle off of it. He's longing for vindication. He doesn't just want rescue, although he asks for that in several ways. He doesn't just want the the enemy's plans to fail, although he asks for that in several ways. He doesn't just want his enemy to be exposed, although he asks for that in several ways. He asks for all of that and publicly. That's vindication. All of that, and that would be seen and made clear to everybody looking on. That's vindication, all of it, and publicly, so that everyone can respond as a result. Look at verse 27. Then those who want my vindication will shout for joy and be glad, continually saying, the Lord be exalted. David wants his vindication to be public. He wants the deliverance of the Lord in his life to be seen. Once he receives it, his praise is going to come. Once he sees it, those, everyone looking on who, who is for him, their praise is going to come forward. Is David making a deal with God? This is a good question. Maybe you guys talked about this in Cadres a little bit this week. Is David making a deal? Is he saying, God, I know that you want praise and stuff, and you like it when people talk about you and say things about you and say nice things about you, and so if you just kind of give me this deliverance that I need from my enemies, God, then you'll get that from me. Is that what's going on here? If you give me this, I'll give you that. Is David making a deal? Well, humans are definitely prone to do this with God, are, are, are we not? We're definitely prone to do this with God. We're very prone to make this for that deals with God. Uh, God, if you do this, then I'll, I'll follow you and I'll go to church. Or, or God, if, if you do this and I'll stop doing this, which I know you don't want me to do. We're very prone to make these deals. Now, I'm not saying that there's anything necessarily unhelpful about thinking like that, but, but I hope if you have made those deals with God. This is how I would say it. If you have made those deals with God, uh, those like contracts with God, those this is for that, if you have made, I hope that those bring you close enough to a God and you discover a God who's not like that at all, who doesn't work like this for that. You discover a God who's, who's completely loving and loyal and he doesn't do this is for that. He doesn't do contracts. He does something called covenant, which are promises of loyalty no matter what happens. This is the God who you've tried to enter into a deal with, and you discover that God, and you realize, oh my goodness, this God will love me no matter what happens. As you draw closer to him with your deal, you discover he's nothing like that. He's far more glorious and far more beautiful with that. That throughout the scriptures, he demonstrates that, that even when we can't keep our side of the covenant, he'll carry that for us as well. So, so have I seen people misunderstand this about God? because it's so foreign. This notion that someone would be completely loving and loyal to us no matter what we do is so foreign to us. I've seen people kind of misunderstand that, enter into deals, but then find this truly amazing, incredible, beautiful God that doesn't work like that. 
how amazing it is and, and fall in love with a God who just loves them no matter what. <laughs> they start to forget about what they want from him because they discover, oh, I could just have God himself. Absolutely. And so if, if you have made a deal with God, I'm not here to rebuke you for that. I'm here to say, I hope it's bringing you close to discovering a God who's nothing like that. And I hope you begin to experience the life that entering into a relationship with someone like that will bring. Because it's, it's wonderful. So don't hear me bashing on making those deals. Um, but is David making such a deal? Well, I don't think so. I don't think so. All of what he talks about in these sections do have to do with his, his mouth what his tongue will do, what he will say, what he will shout, what he will sing. Uh, he's, he's saying this full kind of things. Of, these are all the things that will happen from my mouth if I experience, when I experience your deliverance, God. And as one member of my cadre so wisely put it this week, he looked at us and he said, if you give me $50, I'm going to say thank you. But I'm not going to say, if you give me $50, I'll say thank you. You see that? <laughs> so, ooh, that's very wise. You know, no, no one says that to one another. And that's a little more of the sense of, uh, as to what is happening here. David is just saying, this is naturally who I am. This is naturally who anybody would be if they experience the deliverance from you, God. They're going to, in turn, shout for joy. These people who look on and see it, they're going to shout for joy and say, uh, they're going to exalt the Lord. May the Lord be exalted. He takes pleasure in his servant's well-being. That's what they're going to say. And there's a, another big clue that gives us insight into the fact that David's not making a deal. This vindicate desire, this, this, this request for vindication, he attaches a, another phrase to it. He says, vindicate me, Yahweh Adonai, in keeping with your righteousness. Keeping with your righteousness, God. Your righteous, do it for you, God. These people want to exalt themselves over me. Deliver me so that we can exalt you. This is the play on words that's happening in, in, in the passage. They want exaltation in the world. Deliver me from that, and then we will all exalt you. David's like, I'm not asking to deliver me from their aim to exalt themselves so that I can be exalted. Deliver me from their, exalted so, their, their desire to be exalted so that you can be exalted, God. This is, this is David's core desire in his heart. Do it for your sake, God. Do it so, so that you're seen as, as, as the righteous God that delivers that you are, that you've proclaimed yourself to be. What's beautiful about it is David has already planned out what his response is going to be after deliverance. How often do we do that? <laughs> How often... When we're in the midst of, of trials, of troubles, of temptations, of, of, of whatever it is, whatever, whatever the darkness is, how often are we in hope saying, this is what it's going to look like when deliverance comes? This is how I'm going to respond when deliverance comes. David's playing chess. He's thinking a couple moves ahead. Spiritual chess. It's incredible. It's beautiful. He says, I'm going to tell everybody about who you are. He's incredibly frustrated with God. How long, O oh Lord? These, these verbs in verse 22 and 23, do not be silent. That's used of mute people, not just like someone who's being, that's used of a mute person. Wake up, God. Are you asleep? Did you see this and then go to bed? Wake up and rise. To, like he's frustrated with God. But he's looking ahead. And he's saying, when this deliverance comes, I'm going to rejoice. And when this deliverance comes, all your people are going to rejoice, God. It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. This, 
I love this psalm. So what's going on with David in this psalm? He's asking God for public vindication for those who sought to ensnare him. And even though he hasn't experienced that vindication yet, he's looking forward to a time when it's come. He's placing his hope in that. And he's letting that hope wash back and give him energy to keep on going today. That's what David's doing. He's gaining energy from placing his hope in the future deliverance of God. That hasn't come yet. Deliverance hasn't come in this psalm. It's not here yet. He's just hoping in it. So that's what's going on with David. What's going on with Jesus Christ? What's going on with Christ? And and before we contemplate the life of Jesus, let's look at verses five and six because there's something fascinating going on here. It says, this is part of his rant of really asking God to oppose his opponents. He puts it like this. Let them be like chaff in the wind. So this is like uh, what's left when you... So this is an agrarian kind of picture. Uh, you'd have a bunch of wheat that you cut down and it's sitting there on the ground and you take the, the fork, the pitchfork. I grew up not knowing what this was for, okay? Didn't know what this pitchfork was for until I got to seminary, okay? So you take this pitchfork, you put it in the wheat, you throw it in the air on a windy day. The grains fall down to the bottom, you're left with the wheat and then the wind blows the... the stuff that's encasing the wheat away. Chaff, thank you, yeah. Chaff out, out and off. You typically do it on like a high hill. So it blows it down the hill. So he's saying, get them away from me, angel of the Lord. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. So we have a reference here to the angel of the Lord. It's all caps in your Bible because that's the name of the Lord, Yahweh. The angel of Yahweh. It's not an angel of Yahweh. It's the angel of Yahweh, which is important. The angel of Yahweh appears in the Old Testament something like 60, 65 times. Um, Only in the book of Psalms and this psalm and in the psalm right before it. Scholars actually think that these psalms are next to each other because they're the only mentions of the angel of the Lord in the psalms. If if you turn a page over to Psalm 34, verse 7, the angel of the Lord This is also of of David. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. The angel of the Lord encamps, rescues, protects from outside threats. This is the function of the angel of the Lord, of Yahweh in in the Old Testament. He encamps around them. So so David is petitioning for for the angel of Yahweh in a similar manner here in Psalm 35. He's saying, protect me from the threats. Protect me from my opponents. Who is this angel of the Lord then? Mysteriously emerging throughout the Old Testament scriptures to protect his people. He appeared to Hagar when she was in danger. Abraham when he was in danger. The angel of of the Lord was present in the burning bush talking to Moses to oppose Egypt. That's like what initiated the whole coming out of Egypt thing. The angel of the Lord working to redeem and rescue his people, protect his people. And what's especially strange about this angel of the Lord is he speaks as God. He speaks as God in the first person. Like like in the burning bush, uh, the angel of the Lord says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then it says, Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. And so in the, in the pages of the Old Testament, it's always a bit of a mystery. So to, to modern day Jews, it's still a bit of a mystery. How can God be an angel, something other than God, but also speak as if he is God? 
And, and what's clear here is that he comes to represent the, the visible and, and tangible expression of God as he interacts with creation, because God is, is not created order. He's something other than creation. God is spirit. He is not physical and tangible. And so how can this be? How can this be? Um, when Jesus Christ showed up on the scene, he said things like, no one will be able to grasp you out of my hand. No one can snatch you out of my hand. He said things like, I am the good shepherd. He said things like, oh, Jerusalem, how I've longed to, to gather you as chicks under my wings like a mother hen. He said things like this. Interesting. If Jesus had existed eternally then, would he not carry the same function in the Old Testament? He seems, when he shows up, he seems to embody the function of protecting God's people that the angel of Yahweh does in the Old Testament. What if this good shepherd stuff wasn't a new thing that Jesus envisioned himself doing, but something that he'd always done? An extension of who he always was to the people of God as the angel of Yahweh. The angel of Yahweh is the Christ in a certain sense, in the Old Testament. The second person of the Trinity showing up into the created order to guard and protect the people of God. Before he was in flesh as Jesus. And actually, this helps us understand all of the scriptures. Um, We have images of Jesus at the end of the New Testament in the book of Revelation, which are troubling. Anybody read Revelation? Troubling images about Jesus showing up with a sword coming out of his mouth robes dipped in blood because he's been protecting the people of God? Sounds like the angel of the Lord, does it not? Defending his people. If you thought, this doesn't look like the Christ of the Gospels, well, yeah, you're kind of right, you know? You're kind of right. This angel of the Lord is throughout from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end in the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. Now, We have to keep moving. We can't get stuck in the rut of Trinitarian theology for too long. It's a beautiful rut to get stuck in. Don't get me wrong. If you want to continue in this rut, email dave at sedarischurch.com. Okay? (laughs) Email. Honestly, though, Dave loves talking Trinity. He loves it. He loves the Trinity so much. And just embracing it as this paradox that we can't fully understand. But as we dive into it more and more, we find ourselves getting richer and richer with with the knowledge of God. The Trinity is very amazing. Um... So this psalm is not just about Christ, is what this all is meant to say. This psalm is not just about Christ. David's crying out for the Christ. He's crying out for the angel of Yahweh to make the way of his opponents dark and slippery like God did in the Exodus account when Pharaoh was with his chariots was chasing Israel across the Red Sea. He says, God messed with their wheels. Couldn't go anywhere. And you know what happened after the water came over them and, and killed them? You know what happens in Exodus 15? So the wheels slipping is Exodus 14. Exodus 15, do you know what happens? A song of exaltation of God. You think David has that in mind as he pens this psalm? You better believe it because you know what's in that song? Lord, who is like you? This is verse 10. Lord, who is like you? It's the key refrain of that song. He's calling out for the Christ to deliver him. Um, So, 
He's calling out for Christ, crying out for Christ. What else is going on with Christ? Because the psalm is also fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That is, it's seen as most complete and true and beautiful when examined through the lens of the life, the death, and and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, Often when you read the psalms, it's really helpful to envision um, seeing Jesus pray this psalm to pray each prayer to the Father. And I'd never done this until this week. I don't know why I had, I'm 35 years old. I'd never done this until this week. It's such a waste. And so if you're younger than me, please take this and run with it. It's, it's just amazing. If you're older than me, maybe you've already figured this out. Hopefully. Anyways, so what I did this week was there's this thing called an audio Bible. I don't know if you guys know about these. You can play it out loud and it'll speak the, the psalm for you. Have you guys heard of this? Of course you have. Okay. So it'll speak it. And what I did was I I put that on and I just sat and listened as a bystander and imagined Jesus reading or praying this psalm to the Father. And it just broke me completely, completely down. And I gained like three sermons worth of material. Don't worry. I threw out two of those. But it just complete. I was reduced to a puddle of tears and the, the incredible ways that, that, that Jesus embodies and, and lives and is this psalm. Run with that. Take that tip as you engage the psalms in the future. Put them on your phone and then just sit as you listen to Jesus talk with the Father. It's a powerful experience. Because this is a, a prayer of Jesus throughout his ministry and especially in the final week of life. Um, as his enemies are plotting and planning against him, asking him questions to trap him and, 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 and twisting words and the things that he said and the things that he done to try to say, aha, we got him. This is the life of Christ. This is the entrapment that the religious Jewish leaders had on Christ. But beyond that, this psalm is about Jesus Christ doing battle with the powerful forces of sin and death. He was able to look at those opposed to him with compassion because he saw the, the greater battle going on. He's, my battle here is with sin and death. So he looked at those who put him on the cross and said, Father, forgive them. I do not know what they do. Because he knew his, who the real enemies were. Sin, death, Satan. And when he petitions the angel of the Lord, it forces the question, when he asks for the angel of the Lord to come deliver him, forces the question, who's going to be the angel of the Lord for the angel of the Lord? Who's going to be the protector for the protector? Who's the Christ for the Christ? As Jesus prays his prayer, his death, it just becomes inescapable, completely inescapable. We discover how vulnerable he made himself, how he reduced himself to nothing, all the way to the grave. He opened himself up to attack. He saw the net, walked into it. He saw the pit, jumped into it. He took the false witnesses' statements and didn't say anything. He climbed down into it under the power of sin and death. He quietly took it all. He let the world swallow him up completely refused to protect himself so that he could be our protector still. He refused to be his own Christ so he could be our Christ. Protect us from who? From God the Father. 
so that he could absorb the righteous justice of God that was barreling towards a rebellious humanity that killed him when he showed up. He made himself nothing, completely vulnerable to all of it, because he was choosing to protect us over himself, to protect us from encountering a holy God without being washed in his righteousness. Christ, the vindicator-in-chief, you could call him, refused to vindicate himself and instead waited on the vindication of the Father. This is so similar, if you know the life of King David. This is how King David lived his life. He didn't try to vindicate himself over his enemies. He waited for God's vindication. He waited, he waited. Jesus, too, never took it into his own hands. This prayer could only be prayed by someone who stays their own vengeance, doesn't fight back, who turns the other cheek. And Jesus showed us what that looks like. And his death and his death and resurrection mean that sometimes this prayer will be a prayer that even we will take to the grave with us. But God does deliver from the powers of sin and death and from the enemy. He does. And on the third day, he vindicated Jesus Christ and rose him from the grave. It was God's testimony to the fact that everything Jesus did, everything he said, everything he was about was true. God wouldn't raise someone up who said he was God if he wasn't God. This is a great vindication, public vindication of everything Jesus was about, rose them up from the dead. The things he taught about God were in line with how God has ordered humanity and his relationship with them. His claims to be God were true that he was, in fact, God. All of his opponents stand corrected in front of the empty tomb. He's vindicated. So Jesus waited three days to be vindicated from death. But this psalm actually sees its truest, most final, um, um, fulfilled, and and purpose-filled form about 50 days later, 50 days after Jesus's death. Um, What am I talking about? Because there's an interplay that's going on here in this psalm that actually isn't seen until Pentecost. This is the day when the Spirit comes down on, on the disciples and they start speaking in tongues and then Peter has to give up there and give a sermon and the first half of his sermon is really all about like, hold on, this is what's happening. It's, they're not drunk. They're actually, it's just a fulfillment of God's prophecy from Joel chapter two. Peter's preaching a sermon and it gives these people the opportunity to experience the shame and conviction, and respond to the reproach. So in Acts chapter 2, we're going to look at it together. There's a couple parts of the sermon I want to pull out. Acts chapter 2. This is Peter speaking now. This is part of his sermon. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. This is who Jesus was. This is what you did to him. And then God vindicated him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. And then he goes into a couple scripture references as to why that's true. And then he says this. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. 
and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles' brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, each of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. This is the psalm doing its work. This is why even though David calls for God to use his spear and his javelin, he doesn't call for them to kill anybody, but just to pierce their hearts. That's the language they use. This cut them to the hearts. The promise is for you and your children, even though you've done this. The vindication of God's people is ultimately meant to cut their persecutors to the heart that they too might have an opportunity for Christ to be even their protector. Friends, this is why staying our own vengeance and and wrath is so important, why loving enemy in the midst of persecution is so, so, so crucial. Because when God vindicates you, your opponent has an opportunity to respond as well. God, full of grace and mercy, calls the rebellious and the unrighteous who oppresses people to him too. May we not get in the way of that with our vengeance. So those are some of the things of what's going on with Christ here in this psalm. So we talked about what's going on with David, what's going on with Christ. Now let's talk about what's going on with us. What's going on with us? Such a great question. (laughs) What's going on with us? The last time you asked that of yourself, what's going on with me? How little a human being asks themselves this question is alarming. What's going on with me? This is what's going on with you. Um, Jesus Christ needed to be vindicated from you. And that sucks. That's hard news to handle. I'm not going to say it's not that bad. It's, It's bad. It's bad. God himself, Jesus Christ, needed to be vindicated from you and from me from our rebellions that are rooted in our own self-exaltation, from how we we refuse to give him what's rightfully his. We receive life from him, and in return we give him the middle finger, and we, we use and exploit the other people that he's created and put here on this earth. We spoil his creation. It's bad. There's no sugarcoating it. That happened. That's still happening. Here's the good news. Hidden within his vindication from you is the hope for your own deliverance from the powers forcing your hand and your rebellion to him. That's the world, the flesh, and the devil. Hidden in his vindication is the deliverance for you to vindicate you from those same powers that put him to death. A vindication that can be for your own good if you let it. Now perhaps you'd say, yes, Ryan, I'm on board with this. I know all that. I've got it down. Now what? What is this psalm about? What is this psalm about? It's about the rejoicing of vindication. The rejoicing that comes after we experience this. Each segment ends with it. Is it not proclaiming all that God has done in his working his marvelous vindication in our lives and in our world? Is it not doing that? To proclaim about who this God must be, how powerful he is, and what he's done for you? even if not just to other believers. Is it not to, to do that? Is this not what this psalm is all about? 
If you would say, you know, I honestly don't do that very often, I actually guess. Then perhaps you're on board with this intellectually, but you haven't let it sink down into your heart. You haven't let it sink down into your soul. You haven't let the vindication of the the Lord assure your very soul like David is talking about in verse three, and assure my soul that I am your deliverance. It's your soul assured. It's one thing for the mind to be assured. It's another thing for the soul to be assured. Only an assured soul is gonna bring about this exaltation of God. Um, how do we do that? Maybe you're like, shoot, that's me. I, I, I hardly ever talk about God. I definitely don't talk about what he's done for me in my life very often. You know, like, shoot, what do I do? It's to reflect upon the deliverance that he's worked for you. And that can be difficult, especially if you've um, grown up in the church, for instance, that's hard. I didn't really live a big life of rebellion. For some of us, it's easy. It's like, oh, very clear how I rebelled against God in life. For for some of us, a little more difficult to grasp it. What has God actually delivered me from? What has he actually rescued me from? But but you can start with this question. Um, Who would you be today, given your natural dispositions and inclinations, given your natural hopes and dreams? Who, or where would you be today? Who would you be today? if it had not been for God's salvific action in your life, if, if he had not delivered you, if he had not rescued you, if he had not vindicated you, who, who is that person? God saved you from that person. God saved you from that person. Given your, your previous actions and, and lifestyle, where would you be today? Where, where was that trajectory going? Where was it headed? But where are you now? That's, that's the gap of salvation. Meditate on that. Reflect upon that. You will discover a deep, deep gratitude for all that God has brought you through in life. It will lead to shouts of joy. God has delivered you from the the powers of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Specify that in your life. Attach some real things to those categories. You'll discover you'll be proclaiming his wonders and his mercies afresh. Now, So you may not have people who frequently oppose you in your life like David or Jesus, but you do have these spiritual opponents in the world. You you do have Satan and and dark spiritual powers that work against you, that that set nets for you constantly, without cause, without cause, just because you're made in the image of God, without cause. It's trying to swallow you up, trying to bring you down into a pit, trying to trap you in despair, once you're down there to endlessly accuse you, these are your opponents without cause. And like David, we plead the Christ to be our protector. We renounce the enemy and everything that he brings against us in the name of Jesus. Look how terrible you are. I can't believe, I can't believe you did this again. You're such a failure. You're nowhere close to being a Christian. In the name of Jesus, I am. How could anybody ever love you? You're so worthless, pathetic, miserable, no gifts, no kind. In the name of Jesus, I've been given gifts from the Father and loved by him. This is, this is, what, this is what we call confession of, of really reclaiming the spiritual truth in your life that the enemy is always speaking against you. That some days it just feels like it never stops. I know, I'm prone to despair. I'm there. But in the name of Jesus, there's hope. This is what the psalm is all about. 
Yes, it's, it's, it's miserable. We stand oppressed by sin and darkness. I get it. It's there. We're there. But the best application of this psalm goes beyond sitting there. It's to play chess with the enemy and cry out to God, God, deliver me, and once you do, I will shout for joy at your name. And imagining that rejoicing, that feeling of what it's going to feel like to be delivered and, and, and sit apart from this despair or whatever is creeping down on you, that feeling that image of rejoicing can wash back and give you energy today to keep on putting one step, one foot in front on the other. Can you imagine how you'll respond if that thing, I don't know what it is, that is always weighing you down, can you imagine how you would respond if it was taken away? Can you imagine how you would respond if it was wiped off your shoulders? Let that hope give you energy to continue to bear it for as long as the Lord leaves it there. I don't know where you're at, I don't know what specifically is going on with you. I don't know where you felt squeezed, where you felt empty, where you felt crushed, where you felt abandoned this week. But I do know, I do know that there is the opposite of that. The Lord's vindication stands for you, waits for you. We can cry out for it now. We can be frustrated with God for it now that it remains on our shoulders. We can do that. And... Let's look forward to a time when it'll all be taken away. When heaven comes down to earth and this place is made how it was supposed to be again. Where we can be in relationship with one another perfectly again. Where we can be in relationship with God perfectly again. When we can relate to our relationship with the created world perfectly again. When we can pursue work perfectly again. When we can pursue relationship perfectly again. The hope of eternity is what helps us continue on and plod forward when we don't experience its fruits. This is the Christian hope. I hope, it's my, my deep, deep desire that each of us, even as we suffer, even as we're loaded down, we can catch a glimpse from it, a glimpse of it in our minds. We can encourage one another with it so that we might be able to find the strength to continue on empowered by his spirit. Let's pray.